You should be castrated. Quick and clean, just chop it off. Then you wouldn't have to worry about notifying the neighbors. You know what else you should do? Nail his penis above the entrance to the elementary school. <laughs> you know, as a warning to other perverts. You think this is funny? I just can't believe you want to castrate a man for indecent exposure. My brother <laughs> used to expose himself when, when we were teenagers. He'd do it in my bedroom. He'd do it in the dining room. He'd do it in the backseat of a car. He'd always figure out a way to do it so that nobody could see him except me. Didn't you tell anyone? No, I didn't want to get him in trouble. Maybe he should be castrated. Hello there, and welcome to Pivotal Film. I am Tom Nolan. And I'm Mario Ponzio, and this is episode 77. I like how every time we need to say a number, we have to check a document. Yeah, well, we don't really <laughs> look at the number. We know the movies that we're going to be talking about. Right, right, right. And usually we look back at our list and go, all right, this is what number it is. Yeah. But the actual numbers, like, don't matter, especially since we're counting backwards. Mm-hmm. Well, the other day confusing. I went to update the website, and I noticed I had already done it. And I was like, when did when did this happen? I thought we had recorded like six episodes since then. We had not. Hmm. <laughs> we had recorded zero. So <laughs> I don't know. We have a couple still in the back burner. I think, right? Um. Yeah. We got we got some bonus stuff in case yeah. one of us dies. We can put like one. We can throw one up there and <laughs> just be like, "Well, this is the last." I mean, no, no. no. We would, we would if one of us dies. We should make a commitment that. We'll just find someone who can do a really shitty impersonation of us. Mm-hmm. Or not even like sound anything like us, just say they're us uh-huh. and then just keep going. I'll just get your list if it's me. If it was me, I would get your list and let someone just look at it and then have them watch the movie and try to no. interpret how oh, you would have that'd be good. I like that. Why this was on Mario's list. And then at the end of the show, the person who apparently died comes back because they had faked their death. And then they have Another 66 or so episodes about the interpretation, Yeah, whether or not that was right. That's a good way to explain You know, we should this. stop talking and maybe yeah. uh, start drinking beer. Let's drink some beer. All right. So we're gonna, uh, we've been referring to this as the beer gimmick for a couple of weeks, and this is the thing we kept forgetting to bring. Um, our good friends at Thimble Island Brewing, they're in Brantford. They are in Brantford. They're um, such good friends that we don't remember what city they're in. Well, because I, I never remember the Brantford or Guilford. They just kind of are all, they're just like the same area even, to me. They are bordering, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. But there's like Branford, and then there's North Branford, and oh, then there's yeah. Guilford, and there's North Guilford. Um, but Thimble Island. No North Clinton. No North Clinton, no. They're just, because Clinton's just a shopping mall. So no that's, North Madison. That's all there is. Madison's just a bookstore with a beach. And a, and a cinema. And a movie. That's across the street. So oh. there you go. Um, Thimble Island has a beer called Mutually Assured Destruction. It's a, nice a, uh, it's a stout. Russian stout. Yeah. Um, Gotta say it right. Imperial Russian Imperial stout. Imperial Russian stout. This is our first Imperial Russian stout, I think. Uh, maybe second. Maybe on second. Show. Um, these are um, special in the sense that they are brewed with some different flavors. So they're selling them in four packs and there's four different flavors. So we will be, over the next four episodes, um, imbibing one of these and one of these flavors. Three of them are pretty ordinary things you'd expect in a stout. The last one that we're going to be doing is... Interesting. I'm excited for that. I'm one. very excited. Yeah, too. yeah. Um, the one we're starting with is uh, s'mores. It is a Russian imperial 
flavored stout brewed with lactose, cocoa, graham crackers, with marshmallow added. Oh, no, I don't. I see. I really hate it when breweries add flavor. Like, oh yeah, me too. I, I if you if you gonna get a favor like a flavor profile, you have to like you know find the right hops, toast the the malt for the right amount of time. And if you can't get that flavor, then maybe uh, you, you just don't do Well, that, that was, I think, the problem I had with that outer light coffee stout that we drank that one time, where the coffee was added. Mm-hmm. It wasn't brewed I mean, at with least like like a, a coffee flavor. Although I did the like beans, the, ha- I did the, like the rise good. and shine. The beans are kind of good in the same way they oats work. Like, I think they, there's the same sort of absorption. I don't know. I don't uh-huh. know too much about beer. But um, when they just kind of like throw shit in, like some... Things like throw Fruit Loops and cereal yeah. of our sorts, and it's like candy, and it's like come Stop on. Stop throwing candy in the beer. Yeah, unless you're a baby, then you can throw <laughs> unless all you're the baby, candy. Then you in can the throw beer. all the candy you want. All right, and let's become babies while we drink this 11 percent concoction. I think it's a 10. Ah, is it a 10 really? or is it 11? The original uh, Mad is a 11. It's a 10. Ah, so we lost one. The marshmallows really so cut down the uh, gravity. Mm. Flavor wise, not hyper impressive. It's kind of all over the place. Yeah, it's it's a uh, like each place it kind of like hits your tongue. Like the taste buds kind of respond in a different way. Yes. And, I mean, you get a caramel front. After that, I don't know what I get. I definitely maybe maybe a toastiness of marshmallows. But I don't toastiness. taste any graham cracker. I get I don't a little taste graham any, cracker on the after chocolate. Which is surprising. Mm. I taste no chocolate. I taste I get, caramel. I get graham cracker in, in the after In the back? Taste. It's like on my, on the no, after it's on my sides. But when you drink it, like when you first take that sip, it's almost kind of like a cyclone of your tongue's trying to... I can actually kind of feel my tongue trying to process this beer. I mean, it has I a nice like a good... mouthfeel. It has a good like silky mouthfeel to it. And it kind of finishes like, mm, maybe like a burnt graham cracker. Like a, what was that cereal? Golden grams. Tastes like a golden gram at the end. I guess so. That might be fair. But um, well, I guess so. If you're having a s'more, if you if you like your marshmallow a little charred, there might be a little char with the graham cracker, right? Or you could just put you know golden. There it is. You could just put golden grams. The after the after taste is very graham crackery, which is uh, weird. Maybe maybe slightly, but definitely no chocolate, which would be the I think easiest thing to create. In a Imperial Russian stout. So it tastes like a just a, a s'more from a lactose intolerant person. <laughs> and what's funny about that is this person couldn't drink this beer because there was lactose, there was lactose added to in it. it. So fuck that Overall, person. Overall, it's fine. Yeah, I'm looking. Well, the next I one. I think it's promising. There's, especially some of the flavors coming up seem promising to that base flavor. Mm-hmm. I don't think the marshmallows did anything. I mean, as on a plus, it is promising and it is interesting. It's not. It's, it's not pretty like, as hell. It's not gross. I mean, it's really pretty. It's a good color. It's dark. Yeah. yeah. I put spilled that, some on the, put the, spilled put some on the, on the floor. It was very dark. Later. Yeah, nice I color. will. Um, all right. That's the beer. Let's talk about... So we yeah, have, that was we a, have long, a lot of... We have a lot long of... Long beer discussion. This is going to be a long episode, and we're already starting in a bad Jesus place. Christ. All right. Um, yeah, we have a lot of work to do tonight. What's uh, We wanted to go back, though, to yeah. our, our last our last week episode. Um. Our last week's bonus episode, which became a regular episode in our absence, uh, we talked about nine of the ten best animated shorts and had a little joke that, you know, during the broadcast ourselves, uh, our recording, we're not really broadcasting anything, during the recording, 
re <laughs> animal behavior would drop. It didn't happen that day, but about three days later, sure did. Animal behavior dropped. I am a wonderful being. I love myself. Ah, very good. Lorraine's partner is sending her a very clear message. How should she deal with this? Why doesn't she just stop being such a parasite and give the guy a break? What? Ugh. At least I don't buy this hat off during sex. You should watch your mouth. Don't tell her. Okay, okay. Animal Behavior is a Canadian production. Uh, written and directed by the husband and wife team of David Fine and Allison Snowden. It is a story of anthropomorphic animals in a circle therapy session. Mm -hmm. uh, each of their compulsions are odds, behaviors, uh, uh, mental ailments, um, is tied to their actual animal behavior. There is the pig that is the overeater, the uh, obsessive-compulsive cat. There's a leech. Yeah, the leech it's, with attachment issues. Yeah. Which was pretty clever. Yeah. Um, I like this because it was refreshing in the way that every single short, in with the exception of the DreamWorks style one, um, the one you hated, it's very forgettable. It was fun when watching it. The one oh, where the Bilby? bird. Bilby, yeah. Um, oh, Bilby. It's for, Bilby's forgettable as hell, but it's fun while you're Obviously, watching it. Yeah. But I think all the other ones had a lot of gravity to them where they didn't necessarily... Yeah. Like, oh, yeah, there yeah, was yeah, a yeah. big sure. force gravity. Some of them succeed immensely. Uh, this one is... There's no gravity at all to it. It plays out like almost a Bob's Burger sketch uh, yeah, to me. You know what? I, could, I didn't really like it. I found it annoying. Although I kind of appreciated it for the same reasons you did. I was just like, wow, the fact that this isn't about like death is <laughs> is kind of... I well, think you said refreshing. Leech, the, uh, Lorraine almost dies. Yeah, yeah, yeah. When she gets sat on by Victor, but um, I, I really thought it looked kind of like a a, a really elaborate flip book. It's mm. like so light, you know what I mean? Yeah. That it's just kind of you know. I didn't really care after a while. Although I think the thing that I thought was, well, I mean, this team is known for their lightness. They went on it's to very create Sean the Sheep. So. Oh, with Nick Park. There you go. Um, um, but I love. I think Sean the Sheep is different. It is Sean the Sheep has more character to him than any yeah. Of these it definitely did. has that nice Nick um, Park touch. We might be talking about Nick Park very soon. I mean, I thought the comic timing was pretty good. Yeah, like, I no, the, the, the dog, the, the therapist was was really funny, especially when he was talking about sniffing people's butts. Especially when uh, I love when Victor and uh, Cheryl, the pregnant are in the elevator, and he just randomly goes, a thousand kids. <laughs> like, it's timed really well. Because well, she asks him out on a date, and he's like, yeah, sure. And then he gets on the elevator, and he's like, a thousand kids. Which uh, is, which is, which good, is yeah. fun. It's... And this shows kind of like the professionalism of the team. And it's this one feels like the most professionally made in the sense of the timing's not rough around the edges like almost all the other shorts had, maybe with the exception of something like Bow. Um, or uh, the, the you know the sea um, age of sails. Mm -hmm. um, this one felt the most like it was a actual production team coming down to make it. You know there there was yeah. there was a uh, it was clean around the surfaces despite the animation style. Was, and this is a team that won best animated short like back in '94, I think. Right. Bob, so I mean to make the, uh, so yeah they have whatever the talent. It's fine. Um, it's not doing anything to my top five. No, nothing at all to my top five. I, I appreciate it. Um, I liked eight of the ten now, so I think that's a pretty good pretty good cut. And uh -huh. it's interesting to know that, once again, 
<laughs> these probably aren't even near the best. But so no, no, it no. says maybe you know. But nobody you can check out more us to tell us differently. So. Animated shorts. There you, you go. Can. Um, all right, so we saw new movies this week. Uh, correct. Mario. We saw two big ones, I'd say. Well, one very big one, and in, in terms of the Oscar season, the year one, little unfortunately, kind of less so. Uh, the first movie we saw, directed by Yorgos Lanthimos, uh, written by Tony McNamara and Deborah Davis, is the favorite. <gasps> Sometimes it is hard to remember whether you have loaded the pellet or not. I must take control of my circumstance. Throw! I'm on my side. Always. It is a satire period piece. I think you'll get more into I hope that. so. Yeah. I hope. I, th- I think it is. I don't know, but I think it is. Yeah. And it's, you know, stars Queen Anne, played by Olivia Coleman, who won the Golden Globe for it, and the National Society of Film, and the Volpa Cup from Venice. So she's having a pretty good run. As she deals with her eccentricities and mental illness and abandonment issues. And her physical um, ailments. And her, yeah, like yeah. Her severe gout. Um, and then there's kind of a war for both. Not necessarily Anne's affection, but her affection for one character and the position for the other mm. uh, from Abigail, played by Emma Stone, and Sarah, played by Rachel Wise. And the um, story unfolds as these two people fight and argue and pitter-patter around. Uh, you know, this plays against the backdrop of the greatest performance of the year by Horatio the Duck. Which is the true story. <laughs> this is a film about a racing duck who is treated with such love and reverence. It's about nothing else. No, it's, everything else does not matter. I'm actually confused, and that's why I'm, I'm bothered by this film, is the fact that it ends you know, on that shot of Anne and Abigail kind of like realizing that they kind of fucked up big time. And I'm like, Sandra going, like, where's Horatio? Yeah, we just wanted that duck what? to come back. Horatio's not there, so he made out well. <laughs> the duck racing scene is really funny. Yeah, it is. And then the fact that like the ducks in subsequent scenes, uh-huh. like, is great. Yeah. Um, I I know everyone's supposed to 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 like this movie, especially the British Academy. Twelve um, nominations. I liked it. I thought it was really. I thought it was really fucking funny. Yeah. No, it's um, it's funny, but, but it's, it's forgettable. Yeah, I don't. I I think Olivia Coleman is. Fucking great! Um, yeah, I actually not think my that Emma Stone favorite performance, but of the up yeah, there. Yeah, um, I'm thinking. I'm thinking about it. It's 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 she, she put herself in my head because I think she's really really good. Yeah, um, and she's doing something really unique. She's right. not playing the character. She's playing a kind of a miserable outside, uh, you know. But but she does add that that dimensionality to like the fear and and powerlessness on the inside. Well, I think, I mean, one of the things I think is really interesting about the performance is that a lot of times in film you see um, character growth, and that's usually portrayed in, like, an upward trajectory. So, like, we were talking about, you know, Widows a couple weeks ago, and, you know, a performance we love is, you know, Elizabeth Debicki, um, and she's going up. You know what I mean? Like, she's growing from one thing, and she's growing into a better version of herself. Even something like um, Leave No Trace, um, where those two characters are both growing in their own ways, in their own ways up. I think... The, I don't know if both of them are. They both are, actually. Okay. We, can, we can talk about that well, later. That'll be, a, that'll be a look back yeah. review. Um, 
We'll be talking about it a bit I think next week. An anomaly to this phenomenon is something like Casey Affleck in Manchester by the Sea, where he really tries hard to grow, but he just can't fucking do it. Yeah. Um, this is interesting because I think Anne grows down. Yeah, no, definitely. And like, so that her last face that they, you know, that um, Lathamos just kind of like well, he sits does on while. Three different times he does that so exceptionally well. And it's really, it's kind of fascinating because I don't even know if she's re- recognized that she's fucked up, like that situation per se, but you can tell that um, the next day or the rest of that day is not going to be a good one. Well, like in the next however many years she it, maintains her power is not going to be is not going to be great for it's her. It's clever in the fact that you kind of when he's she's looking there kind of like moving her eyes back and forth she's remembering I don't you know uh, Sarah's last speech to her where she's I just tell you the truth I'm not going to tell you what you want to hear. Mm-hmm. You know the eyes are kind of like darting back and forth cuz she's heard her rabbit be abused by Abigail. Um well cuz Abigail's and, just doing it for you know She's pleasuring her, fingering her, just for the sake of doing it, because it's what the queen wants. Yeah. Well, while Sarah was always doing it, maybe she'd enjoy it as much as the queen, but the queen always could perceive that she I, did. I, I think, think she did. I think she did. I think she did, too. I think I she think loved her. I think she truly her. loved her. Yeah. Um, and now she realizes that she's got this. She's, she's got this between her legs, and what the hell is she supposed to do with this? She's not getting what she wants. She doesn't actually want this to happen to her. She wants like the affection that comes from, yeah, you know, with it. Um, and the driving force of the story is good. It's just it's punctuated by a lot of weird choices. I thought um, that kind of slow the pace down or kind of meander. Uh, that Joel Alwyn like um, Masham mm-hmm. character is is good for comic excites, but I think it really hurts the kind of central narrative mm. in a way that, you know, it's, it's used to kind of tie in Abigail's entrance into be like a lordship or a, a dameship or was it um, not lordship, but ladyship ladyship. Um, but it takes just a, a quick plot device and kind of extends it too much. And there's a lot of well, extensions. That's what, he, that's what he's done in his three major like English releases. And I guess in dog tooth as well. Um, he just kind of, he, <clears throat> some of these scenes, just last forever and not even the scenes per se, but like the time between scenes and um, the way the, the, the way his camera sometimes moves almost too slow. And I think he's doing it to kind of make you uncomfortable and to kind of put you in an awkward position. Um, But sometimes just too slow. And sometimes he doesn't need these in-between scenes. He can just go from one scene to the next scene. I think that was one of the problems that I had with this movie is that when it's not – when Olivia Coleman's not doing something, the movie is really fucking boring. Yeah, I, I, you're, I think you're going to say this, but I agree with you is that you know, the Emma Stone, Rachel Wise performances are fine. They're fine. I actually – I've had it with Emma Stone trying to do other stuff. I think that's why I like – Finally? Finally? Well, after, no. after a couple years ago where you – because we're championing her La La Land I still win. think I like, her La La oh, Land. Shit. No, I still think her La La Land thing is really good. And I think it's because um, she's developed a a Bruce Willis thing. Where she just kind of makes a face through the whole movie. And she do, she's got like a personality that's like a base Emma Stone personality. And you saw this in The Favorite. You see this in um, 
Maniac. Birdman. Um, you see it a little bit in Birdman, but she's a little more open in Birdman. But you see it in, in a little bit in Birdman. Um, and in La La Land, she's not really there. She's she's more open. She, there's more fissures to her character. You know what I mean? There's more uncertainty with what's happening. But past La La Land, she's just kind of playing this. She starts here, like at, at a kind of um, very self-assured person. And she doesn't really go anywhere. She just does stuff. But she stays very self-assured. Um all of her mannerisms stay the same. Um, you know, everything's... She's very samey. I mean, and this performance is very... Is along the lines of... I mean, I think... I, I'm, it, it hit me really strongly because I just... Like, we just... I just saw Maniac. And she's doing a lot of the Maniac stuff here, but with a British accent. And it kind of feels in the same way. Like, Rachel Wise wasn't really trying too hard either. Like, she... I don't know if she was trying to go for very nuanced and in control. Um... But, you know, she's had more, like, pathos and emotion to an nth degree before The Fountain and, yeah. uh, you know, Winning Turn and Constant, Constant Gardner both I mean, show that. So it's just, it's weird that it's so, I think its tone is so, like you said, kind of not slightly self-assured. And when Emma Stone's kind of playing that kind of same character, but they're meant so drastically to be foils to each other, yeah. it, it's, it's offsetting. But that's, I mean, you know, Lathamos has done this. This is his least wooden English language film. I haven't seen a lot of the other ones, um, but you know, from the lobster killing of a sacred deer in this one, his characters are displaying much more emotion in this one than they normally do when they're delivering their lines, like you know, Colin Farrell in the Lobster and Killing of a Sacred Deer, when he's just kind of like robotically reading his lines. Yeah, which, um, which is which is meant to you know put you in a certain headspace and kind of throw you off of, of well, what how you're supposed to feel about anything. I think his I, I think maybe he abandoned that this time for um the cinematography. That Robbie Ryan cinematography because he used like that six inch um or six millimeter like fisheye lens at all times to kind of like get everything in frame. Mm-hmm. And it you know, like it, it allows for like more fluid movement kind of in like it reminded well, it a lot of min, mean streets in some ways. It wasn't how fish, fluid. Yeah, it wasn't fish was. all the time. It was just fish no, it wasn't in fish spots. In spots, yeah. And that's what's creating kind of the emotion I think that the lobster and killing of the sacred deer said. It's like what Robbie Ryan said in Atlantic Review is like by the nature of being able to see everything in front of you, you then get a sense that the characters are almost imprisoned. Um, yeah, and so here's the thing. I don't know if I and he's obviously he made it whatever. I'm not sure if I agree with that. I think the fisheye plays more towards how I viewed this movie, which was as a kind of um, parody of these kinds of movies. Oh, no, I agree. And so where all these movies are always very composed and they're always very well shot, you get this fisheye and he just kind of drops the fisheye in sometimes. And it almost looks like like there's chaos and it almost looks like improvisatory and like you are watching like a live performance. There's a, a there's one point where um, Nicholas Holt's um, Earl of Oxford, what's his name? Harley. Harley. Um, Who I really liked in this. This is he, actually my second best, great. second favorite performance in this film. Yeah, me too. I, and I th- actually thought he stole a lot of the scenes from Rachel Weisz and, and Emma Stone. No, I think he stole every scene I think from was, them. He um, didn't... People Olivia, are really Olivia Cole definitely, like, Goldman, like, put him in his place. Like, yeah. if he tried to. He um, wasn't trying to act, but, like, she definitely shown in those scenes, but I think he outshines everyone. There's the scene when they're talking about, you know, they're always talking about the war with the French and um, Rachel Weiss 
his character Sarah and him take have like a little altercation like at this like settee or whatever where they're sitting. Um and they're talking and then it cuts to the fisheye and like something falls over and like the angles askew. Um and it's really not how that was, those things are supposed to go. It makes the scene much less dramatic because it almost kind of pulls the viewer out of it because the quality of the picture is different also. Well, because they do that several times in like after the party scenes because the party scenes are very, feel very Barry Lyndish-like oh, yeah. in the sense of it's, I think, like probably filmed with na- mostly natural light in yep. those scenes. I mean, I, I, I don't know for sure, but it, it feels like Barry Lyndon. And then like you'll transition to like that running scene with like that fish-eyed lens, which is still maintaining the lighting of something like Barry Lyndon. Uh-huh. Um, and I think some of those longer shots work too because this feels in a lot of ways like a parody or satire of something like Dangerous Liaisons. Yeah, yeah, Because yeah. it's kind of like stuffed in there. <laughs> Historic, like who knows if there was a relationship. Well, the, the, the um, script has, has all these modern kind of, um, you know... Comedic references. Yeah, and, 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 and like a modern timing and... Um, like the dance sequences. Like oh, the, I mean, the dan- that dance sequence is fucking great. <laughs> um, but even like when after... Um, Masham and Abigail get married and, you know, she's trying to scheme some stuff and then he's, you know, he's like, oh, it's our wedding night and I'm hard as a fucking rock. Um, and then she just jerks him off for like five minutes while she talks to herself. Um, like, those things don't happen in normal period dramas like that, although you have to assume that, like, maybe they do, but he's just kind of showing them to you, but they're probably also not as funny. Um, and not as ridiculous and not as absurd. Um, and I'm just wondering if if he's making all these choices, like, how is it not a parody of period dramas? How is it not him saying, like, you know, to marry Queen of Scots, be like, stop doing that. Yeah. Like, hands around his mouth being like, cut it out. Make a different movie. No, it, it, feels, it feels like that. Because it, it does play with the tropes quite often. Mm-hmm. Um, it's, but, like, once again, it just it kind of settles into just being a movie. I just thought it was f- it's I th- fun. I thought it was funny, like, and when it wasn't being funny, I was just bored. And I mean, kind of been like, why is this like a, more funny? If we were on Rotten Tomatoes, which we will be at some one point, day, um, this I think it would get a fresh rating from me. Like, I yeah, would, yeah, yeah, positive, I so but it's too. just like man, it's like a very sort of you know whatever, hands up in the air. Whatever your rating system is, if we, it was out of ten, I'd give it a seven. If it was out of four, I would give it a three. If it was out of a five, I'd give it a three and a half. You know what I mean? Like. This he, is, he's just showing off how much he knows his fractions right now. Good, I'm good at fucking critical fractions. Good at it, Mario. The next podcast. Figured it out. Um, but yeah, so we don't dislike it. I do like it. I just don't think it's as transcendent as I thought it was going to be going in. Well, speaking of liking things and disliking things. Yes, let's speak of um, liking and disliking things. Let's move on to the film that will be most of the discussion for probably this episode. <laughs> okay. Well, <laughs> yeah, we'll do we'll do our list at the very end, but if we're still alive, Tom may beat me to death. I'm not going to beat you to death. I get it. Okay, if you want me to, I will. Okay. Um if Beale Street could talk. When I was growing up, I was trying to make a connection between the life I saw and the life I lived. There are days when you wonder what your role is in this country and what your future is in it. 
Directed by Barry Jenkins. Uh, written by Barry Jenkins. Um, Got a Writer's Guild novel, nomination for this. Which he should. Um, adapted from yeah, a James should. Baldwin um, novel of the same name. Um, I've, I haven't read this novel in years, but I know you know right there. Um, Did you read it for the podcast? Mm-hmm. I, like uh, I should have done that. You do read Little Children for the podcast? Too? I had already read I did, but I, 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 I read, it read it years it, ago. Yeah, I read it <laughs> Spoilers. Little Children is my number 77. Uh, we'll talk about that next. Um, I think these two are going to tie in really well. Which ones? Little Children and Beale Street. Yeah. Anyways, let's talk about Beale Street. Um, Stefan James plays Fonnie Hunt, who gets arrested under false pretenses. Um, he is um, dating and engaged to Tish Rivers, played by Kiki Lane. Uh, they had recently... Um, conceived a baby together um, when he was when he was arrested. Um, so a lot of this movie, the whole movie, is told from Tish's point of view. Um, it, you are inside Tish's head. You are um, yeah, getting you know the reminiscences of Tish from a certain perspective. It's unclear exactly from what date she is remembering them from. It's in the future at some point. Is it in the future that's at the end of the movie? Is it further? down the future than that um it's hard to say it's um, hard that she didn't narrate that to us it would be it was the one thing she didn't tell us okay um it also the movie stars regina king as uh tish's mom um coleman domingo as tish's father um you get michael beach as fonny's father who's an actor i don't re- usually really like it but i thought he was okay in this was he what has he been in before I didn't, He's I just really a character actor. He was in one of those, uh, you know, where I started kind of this fascination with like I don't, I don't love Michael Beaches. He was in one of the hospital dramas. I think it was either ER or Chicago Hope. I might have been Chicago Hope because my parents watched, like they were not ER people, they were Chicago Hope people. And even then, I was just kind of like, this is, this is not going great. Um, but I think he's I think he's good in this. I think he's a I think he's a solid character actor. I just um, he's one of those guys that like tends to overact sometimes. Yeah, and him and um, the, the fa- uh, you know Tisha's father play off each Coleman other. Domingo, Coleman yeah. Domingo, Coleman Domingo, who fucking off each great. Yeah, who's my favorite performance in this um, actually? And I mean the the movie, what when you're not when Tish and fa- when we're not getting um, the reme- uh, the remem reminiscences of Tish and thinking about her and Fani getting together and her experiences with Fani. We are, um, the whole, the movie is based around the idea of all these people getting together to try to get Fani out of prison and how that, um, Brian Tyree Henry is also in this movie. Um, as Daniel, he is a friend of Fani's who um, had been arrested before and then he gets arrested again. Um, after Fani gets arrested, um, Mario? No, you don't want to go first? No, I want to Are you sure? Yeah. Are you sure? Yeah. Um, I thought it was fucking great. I think I texted you that it was a fucking miracle after the thing. Um, yeah, you did. And I, be- I believe it still. Um, the music, the score by Nicholas Bertel, uh, is kind of unbelievable. Um, I think the cinematography is good. Um... I think it's. I mean, I think it's great. I, I think he's doing. It's the same guy he used on Moonlight that Barry Jenkins used on Moonlight. James Laxton. So it has all the moonlight, moonlighty things. He's got this kind of like vaguely washed out, 
um, but really vivid color palette. Um, I, didn't, I didn't see punctual. too much washed out, except well, like for a, in, like the scenes in the apartment. Well, no, it's in like the brown because everything's a brown or it's a yellow or it's like a gray. You what know what I mean? Stri- no, that street sequence is super colorful, though. Right. Well, that's what I mean. So it's got this, which is I think, which is great. I think, um, in the sense where the there, you have these, it's kind of like how any memory works. There's things that that remain really vivid to you. So like sometimes there's. A red umbrella. I mean, there's a lot of red in this too, but sometimes there's a red umbrella that is just like sticks in your head, or um, you know, whatever color it is. Um, I think it's. I just think it's. I think it's wonderful. Um, I think it is. Uh, really emotionally. I think that's what it, I think it does. What moon? What I didn't think Moonlight did very well i think this movie does perfectly which is convey a real honest um emotional core um and then builds a movie around builds a movie around that um i don't i mean i don't really know what else to say i think everyone everyone in it is is good um i think stefan james is funny is is really fucking good oh he's he's exceptional i would um, agree with that yeah, I mean, I don't. I think it's having you know read it. I actually think it's a really good adaptation of of the book. I like all the space that he leaves. I like the I like the quiet. I like the the looking um, because I know what the looking what it is. I know what we're who is looking and what we're looking at. Um, I was thinking of Roma a lot when I watched it and after I watched it in the sense that one of my criticisms of Roma is that we have no idea who is remembering this shit. Um, in this sense, we have a very clear sense of who's remembering it. All the biases that come with that, which is exemplified in, you know, some of those shots of like, you know, that are Barry Jenkins staples now of just like a person perfectly framed in a shot, you know, just kind of standing there. Um, like with the cop, when she tells us about the cop, you know, um, when Fonny got arrested um, or how Fonny got arrested. Um, yeah, go. As Mick LaSalle said in the San Francisco Chronicle, the experience of this film is beyond mired, practically schizophrenic, long stretches of portentous syrupy emptiness followed by scenes that mark with Jenkins' best work. And I 100% agree with that in the sense of there's three really exceptional scenes in this film that convey a lot of the emotion and tension of the story that show that Barry Jenkins is a masterful filmmaker. I did not like Moonlight as a pretense. It's just it doesn't do enough to fill the gaps for me. I think mm-hmm. we both kind of agreed on that, that it just isn't doing a lot of the work it needs to do. Well, there's an emotional vacuum at the end of the movie, which I, which doesn't, you know... Yeah, it carries the... a lot in its second act and loses it all in the third. Right. I, think the first, I think the first act's a little weak. But... Well, I think the first act's good, and it... I think the first act's good, and I think the first act is supported by the second act, and then the third well, act... Well, the second act of that movie's exceptional. The third act lets it all kind of go to hell because it doesn't make any sense and see that's that was my is my major problem with Beale Street is there's three just really exceptional scenes of conveying emotion uh, of carrying themes of, of creating a, a vivid kind of dimensional world um, the first being the discussion between you know, Daniel and Fonny are together 
and those two actors are working against each other. I love Brian Tyree here. I started watching Atlanta finally. Uh-huh. Oh, Jesus Christ, that guy's good. Yeah, I'm yeah. now excited for Child's Play <laughs> because he's going to be playing the Chris Sarandon role, and I love Child's Play. Mm-hmm. And now Brian Tyree Henry's going to be playing that there you go. with Aubrey Plaza. That's pretty. Maybe he'll group. bring it. Maybe he'll bring it. Yeah, Beale <laughs> Street could talk style there. <laughs> he's going to win the Oscar for like supporting. Actor he will for, also for Child's Play. He will also be scared. Yeah, during Child's Play. Oh, that is true. Um, you know, just him and Stefan James working against each other, kind of when Daniel gets into that monologue about uh-huh. his experience in prison, just carries the weight of the systemic racism going on. And, and it does so in a natural way that like really punches you in the gut. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, before I get to sim- similarly, the, the only time I like Tish's narration at all in this film, which I think is the huge handicap, is the narration, is when she narrates, introduces the scene um, where the officer, you know, confronts them after, you know, the attempted kind of sexual, well, the sexual assault. Yeah. Um, in the, in you the... know, confronts outside the, the market Fawny. And, like, that does a lot in just, like, showing you, showing you yeah. directly and not telling you. Because this movie is filled so much after those patches, um, excluding also the great scene between Tish's and Fonny's family. It's mm-hmm. just it's well, hilarious. Yeah, it's just fantastic. fucking great. Um, Tish's sister. I can't remember the actress's name. is really solid. That uh, scene. Tiana Paris. Yeah, she has exceptional comedic There were some whoops during that in the theater when I was watching that. Um, my theater's most emotional reaction was to the Us trailer. So, so there you go. We'll be talking about that movie. Um, um, but those scenes are so fucking strong and carry the emotion and the weight of, of what's going on and the world around them, and it creates a dimensionality to the world. And my problem is everything else, those empty spots to me, just increase the vapidness of these scenes. And it's, it's a romance that I don't buy at all. Mm. Um, Anthony Lane, uh, no, it's not Anthony Lane, sorry. Uh, where was it? I'm just, it just, it was, it was some review I said that just said it, it had an artificial kind of romance to it. They're, they're, you're told you have to, you know, it's actually See, Mick Massal says that like Jenkins practically begs us to love his two young protagonists. And it's, it's there's some of those yeah. scenes, like the scene where he's with the cop that carries a lot of emotion. I believe that relationship. Mm. But outside of that, I don't, the two sex scenes are really awkward. To me, they don't have any sort of. Oh, see, I they're thought not that, realistic at all. Yeah. And they're too. And like the first time they have sex, they're at least Tish is a virgin. You know how funny is, but like that scene is not fucking believable in the least. And it's just. But I don't it, think it has to be so be, fake. See, that's the thing. So I actually think this is one of the discrepancies. I haven't read a lot of reviews of this movie because I don't really care. Um, but I think it's one of the discrepancies with talking about this movie is that we're. Not, I feel like I had to justify my reasoning. So. Yeah. Sorry. <laughs> that's fine. Um, we're not seeing a lot. We're not seeing like an active movie. You know what I mean? We're not seeing like a present tense movie. We're seeing, uh, we're seeing a series of of reflections. And so this is gonna these that stuff is gonna look different than um, a movie that's happening like right now. It's not gonna be. It's not gonna be awkward. You know what I mean? It's not gonna be messy. It's gonna be. It's not gonna be remembered. You know, for. The exact way that it was, it's going to be remembered for how one wants to remember it. And I actually thought that first Isn't that sex kind scene... of a betrayal, though, no, of the novel a, to no, me? No, because that is the novel. I know, but like, there's, it, it, it feels like there's more... 
messiness to the novel. That's no, not there's there. not. No, but like New York, he like Baldwin fucking hates New York in that no- in that novel, and that movie makes New York look gorgeous. No, but like, it, like he says, like what New York must be the ugliest and dirtiest city in the world in the book. Yeah, but it's the ugliest and dirtiest city in the world for a lot of for a lot of reasons besides the one that they're in. So it's like the ugliest and dirtiest city in the world because like they can't rent an apartment anywhere because they're black. It's the ugliest city in the world because a cop can say that a kid ran from literally one side of Manhattan to another side of Manhattan and the guy didn't pick him up until he had been home and eating dinner and he had to drag him out of his house. Um, it's the dirtiest... Don't you think then that's a betrayal of the novel's intentions when the only thing that they really actively do to show you in person in a scene is, you know, his arrest and, and that, that confrontation with the officer. Everything else is no, told to you. It's like, it's... I don't think it is. Like, I all think... those times with the... My problem is, like, all those times where he gets denied from the apartment, mm-hmm. the one time we see them going out to an apartment is, like, when the... Uh, but that's the only the time Dave you see it. The, but that's only okay the time you it. see it in the book, too. You just hear about everything. Like, you know... But I think the, the book you, carries he, the tones this movie can't. But that's... So, I, I think everyone's getting... He... It's... I think it's a really. I think one of the reasons I think it's a really exceptional movie is that he's letting, um, you know. So when we do our awards, it's gonna. This is gonna be um, on my list for like sound mixing, because if you're really paying attention, he does. And which is not to say that you're not paying attention, but I think at at some point you dislike a movie enough and you're just like, well, I don't want to do this anymore. Um, he does a lot of that work with. Like on the on the margins, so like when they're sitting in, there's never not just a ton of fucking shit going on in the background, like all the fucking time. Like when they're in the park, like so that's the thing. I think one of that's a, a, one of the the standout scenes in this movie, and it's one of the things that people, you know, if you want, I get it. I under, I think I understand what you're saying, and people said the same thing about Moonlight, and people said the same thing about Twelve Years a Slave. They're like, oh, you're beautifying. Like watching Michael Fassbender like whip the shit out of a slave. Yeah, but see, I, I think Steve but McQueen did a fantastic job with that because there's like I don't think it's I think cold, it's, it's still a little cold. There's other scenes that look pretty, but that that whipping sequence no, is but, pretty cold. Or, um, no, the whipping scene is cold, but the hang when he was when he was just hanging there that shot beautifully. I think there's scenes when so like when they're going to the park like before this before they have sex like the first time they go into um, Diego Luna's restaurant. You know, they're in the park, and he's like, do you want to you know, have a cigarette? Do you want to get a beer? Do you want to get ice cream? Do you want to eat? Do you want to do this? Um, it's got this really beautiful music going on in the background, and it's shot beautifully. It's composed perfectly, but there's fucking bums, like, on the, uh, like right in behind them and on the sides. You know what I mean? There's bums. Like, these aren't people that have... He, he's not saying that life is beautiful. He's saying that the way that Tish remembers these things, she's not remembering like the disgustingness of the bums and she's not remembering like all this other stuff. She's remembering this amazing feeling that she had, like walking through New York city with Fonny. Um, and that is, you know, that's, it's done perfectly. And to, to me, I mean, it's, but I think my problem with that is like, yeah, that's true. And speaking on the sound design, he also they do a great job of some of the best blending from scene to scene transitions. I noticed, mm-hmm. like in the level of sound, which I I just it flows really well at mm-hmm. times. It's like has a it's kind of lethargic in, to me in some points. Like not necessarily that it, it is itself being lethargic, but it kind of like lulls you mm-hmm. slightly. Um, and I agree that there's smart movements in terms of 
you know the set the art direction set design in the like attorney's office and in the um, jail cell where it kind of is dirty and kind of like like murky kind of mm-hmm. but then like he really confuses beautiful shots in like tish's house and that kind of like which yeah, but, is after fonny gets arrested and there's like kind of it's, it's like a weird kind of well, which ha- disconnect like, fonny's house on bank street or like in tish's parents tish's house? parents house but that's i mean but look at what that house is you know what i mean like they're they raise their kids like in this like two room like squat thing that just you know that's on the back of an alley and whatever you know what i mean it's in a apartment building they don't have any money they're all wearing mismatched clothes they have a bottle of gin or a bourbon that's you know super special um that they've been it's a brandy they've been saving for something yeah um well they have three other they have two other bottles yeah, 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 but like they have this, they have like a special one. Like all yeah. this stuff matters, and that's the thing. So, what I didn't want, what I like about it is that. So it's funny because what I like is that he's not coming out and saying like he's not coming out and saying everything. He's this is, this is a movie about memory. You know what I mean? This is a movie about time, and it's a book about time. And you know, James Baldwin is really angry at New York and Tish and Fonny and. Um, you know, all their parents are angry at New York too. I just, I didn't they, get much of that anger of New York. But that's, a, but they're, but they're. You have to understand that, like when um, Joseph is talking to Frank, when when Tish's dad is talking to Fonny's dad, and they're, you know, sitting there, brooding over their fucking whiskeys, and like, you know, um, you know, Domingo Coleman's just, or Coleman Domingo's is just like. You know, his voice is really gravelly and he's got this crazy fucking beard. And, you know, he's saying all this stuff to him. It's not, might not look angry because it doesn't have to look angry because it looks, it still looks like 70s New York. You know what I mean? It still mm-hmm. looks like a shithole. Yeah. Um, but they are angry. Like the anger is there. They're not just angry at the fact that Fonny's mother and sisters are like super religious and ridiculous and that she curses the baby and stuff they're angry at everything if you're saying this is a movie about recollections though are we then saying when sharon goes to puerto rico that this is just would be tish's interpretation of what happened and that's kind of one of the things that happens in the book too is that like there's a very subtle like i didn't wasn't there because all these parts all those parts are in the book and she's like i wasn't there but this is what happened Type of thing. It's a it's a pretty faithful adaptation in terms of scenes of the book. Yeah, yeah. I mean the the, I think ending, the tonality. The is end off. is the end is different. Um, yeah. But I think you know what though. I've read it since high school. I one of the things, and we could talk about this when we talk about our other movies. Um, is when you're confronting, everyone wants people to confront a work of art on like their own terms. So, like, I perceive this book to be this. So, it, the movie should reflect how I perceive the book. Um, I but what if the what if um, Barry Jenkins just fucking loves this book? You know what you, I mean, like, what if it like I assume he does. You know, yeah. what if it just does something to his heart and he just like can't help himself? You know what I mean? Like, when he reads this book, he doesn't see like a hateful book that's angry in New York. He sees a love story. Like first and foremost, a love story um, that is trying to take shape amongst like you know 
endemic fucking racism and poverty and you know police brutality and all this other stuff. That's I, what he sees, and, and, and it. And I think the book does a. I think the movie does a really, um, an almost perfect job of conveying the fact that this is just two people in a bubble, and and a lot of times they can't see. They can't see past that bubble. Actually, I highlighted a passage here that I think illustrates like the point. It's on page 105. Um, depending on your edition. I think there's only the one edition. Oh, okay. Um, but yeah, well, I guess it's depending. English, English, if you have English. the Library of America complete James Baldwin novels, <laughs> you know, whatever, then it's going to be a different page. Um, so, you know, Tish is remembering things. It's, you know, Dan, it's after Daniel. had They just had the conversation about, about being in prison. Um, and Tish is remembering like them eating dinner that night, and she says, "We are together somewhere where no one can reach us, touch us, joined. We are happy even that we have food enough for Daniel, who eats peacefully, not knowing that we are laughing, but sensing that something wonderful has happened to us, which means that wonderful things happen, and that maybe something wonderful will happen to him. You know what I mean? It's the sense that these two people being together makes the makes the fucking world better, makes everything better." It makes and it's makes her life better. I mean, her life is hard. You know what I mean? She's got to bring this kid up. You know, Fonny Junior. I guess I don't know if he's Junior, but um, by herself because Fonny had to accept a plea deal and he's going to stay in jail for a while. And you know, you see the kid get older as like at the end of the movie. Um, but life is still good because they have each other. Well, I, I agree 100%. And I think some of the negative reviews called this pretentious in a lot of ways. And I don't see any pretension whatsoever. I think, it's pretentious. I think this is a really perfect um, examination of, of how Jenkins felt about the novel. But I think there's there's such a vastness to it that about how he, how he emotionally felt that I, I don't think he, he... For me, it feels like he didn't trust himself enough to convey some of those thoughts like if he wanted to still capture the anger you know he does that quite little aside by tish about you know the systemic racism in the court system and the packed court how packed the courts are and that Mm -hmm. leads to you know further injustices but that's done really quickly with kind of like an aside archive footage shots and this like it feels like jenkins needs to throw this in here because it's a huge part of his interpretation of the novel or like needing to to, part of the book but needing, but also needing to get across like that feeling, but he's allowing other spaces to kind of take up well, so much room that like it just gets so quickly passed over so and feels artificial. I actually think I don't think those things are artificial because I think if it's a movie about memory, um, all of those things didn't they, they weren't pictures of things that were happening at that exact time that like the movie is supposed to be taking place. They're all things that have happened over, you know, throughout not just New York's history, but like. America's history, you know. What I mean, they're not just confronting New York's racism; in, uh, they're essentially confronting the whole history of America's, you know, race problem. Um, and I, so, I think those are really appropriate because you're not going to go back and you know have those conversations. And those would be weird conversations to have somebody say. You know what I mean? There would yeah. be weird, that'd be a weird dialogue moment. And I think my, I think, I think my problem, I think the problem we're having is, is we have a, a, a base different like disagreement on you know, the thesis in, you know, you're saying it's about memories. And if it is 100% about memories, then my question to that is like, why, 
is there a purposeful attempt in some scenes where Tish is recollecting the lawyer's experience with taking this case and getting serious in this case and how he's kind of being ostracized by his Mm -hmm. fellow lawyers like that feels very much like some like she's recollecting it like recollecting it Mm -hmm. but then when those other scenes happen you know in the Puerto Rico scene and the bar scene between the two parents even if like she kind of introduces those scenes when she drops out it, it doesn't convey that that base theme of memory, and that I guess it feel more like. It's but I don't care. Like classical narrative. Those it is classical. I mean, classic you can, narrative. You can have that stuff and still have it be about memory. I mean, the book, the book is told from a future, like perspective, but it has those it has those scenes in there. You know what I mean? Like I don't think I think one of the things that I think one of the things that Barry Jenkins should get a high five for is feeling free to feeling free to follow the book from that perspective, from not from having being allowed to make a movie that some. Um, people may perceive as schizophrenic because it doesn't have this very rigid, like narrative point of view through the whole thing. It had it kind of weaves in and out, but that I think just supports the kind of um, you know recollective quality to it. You know what I mean? But in I guess she's not re- re- recollecting that specific scene because she wasn't there. But who cares? Like, do we really care? Does that really ruin the movie? Well, no. I think I think the criticism about schizophrenia the schizophrenic nature of it. I mean, I thought that was I think that's, term. I mean, I don't but know I th- who this guy is, but I'm willing to bet he hated fucking Moonlight. You know what I mean? He loves, loves little children. Well, that's the meaning he's an idiot. <laughs> Pretty much. <laughs> um, speaking of bad narration, speaking of terrible narration. <laughs> I know. We'll get into that in like 10 minutes. Uh, no, the schizophrenic nature to me, uh, in that sense, comes down more to during those own moments of recollection, like where it's very obviously recollection. There's, there's vastly different tones at, at, in how emotionally of, of a punch it does. That, See, that Daniel think... like um, Fani sequence feels really emotionally real, but those other recollections feel to me See, like they're really they are extenuated and syrupy, quote unquote. Because that would be a part of her recollection, but then there's like still like this really jacked difference where those scenes um, that deal with something with much more gravity and pathos feel real and not so, you know, not so increased to a theatrical level. Um, and maybe that's because those scenes of gravity stuck with her more. Like if if I'm accepting your premise, then like what what. So you have the scene with Daniel. What's the what's the counter scene that doesn't work as well? Uh, the counter scene, like to me, would would be like some of those, some of those early sex sequences. Just that that scene. Mostly though, it's that scene on the street after they find the apartment. You know, from Dave Franco. And, oh my and god, that's just, so good. I hate that. That is the scene. I was like. I was like, I'm not like the pace, a, so, but then it, it, that turn happens. I mean, like, I don't. Oh, I don't want to. I don't, don't want to make a condition. I don't want to. I don't want to like speak to your condition as a human. You know what I mean? I'm not going to say what kind of <laughs> what kind of human you are. Bring it on. Um, but so I'm I'm going to go back to the book. Um, when they get that apartment, and that's a big fucking deal. That's a big fucking oh, deal. Oh no, and, and, it's, and yeah. it sh- and I that's agree. the thing. And so how she's remembering it, and she's remembering it as this almost heroic thing that happened. This um totally unbelievably amazing thing has happened to them after all this time of people denying them a place to live because based on the color of their skin, Dave Franco 
just swoops in and gives you know you know tells him I I just love people who are in love and you should make your babies and about the <laughs> about the sweatshops and all this other stuff. Um, and they fucking did it, which and, is a nice subversion of like the white savior thing, the trope where he just kind of, it's kind of just an idiot himself, you know, yes. it's kind of another white guy. Um, and that's I mean that's where that beautiful swelling score comes in, and they fucking did it, and they did, that's that's the moment, yeah, I, and then I, the moment gets fucking taken from them. So the fact that there's tonal shifts, I think, is appropriate because that's how she wrote. I mean. That's how you would think about it. Like this amazing thing happened, and then she got groped in a grocery store, no, and then and a I, cop almost arrested Fonny for saving her. And I agree. I can agree with that. Like that premise of of, of it being a singular narrative, but I, I just there was a weird extension to the voice in between those scenes that that strikes me as weird. What I mean, what is what an extension like of I, the voice? I mean, like I said, there, there's a certain extreme tightness to some, those those really tense dramatic sequences those those three big sequences and you know some of the other scene i'm trying to think of of one that would pop out to me um god there's there's so many like sequences that just kind of have that kind of float like the 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 scene where they they kind of meet on the, in the beginning of the first date, that, that even that scene that I like, that where they're talking to Diego Luna, it kind of floats slowly. It's slow. It's it's it ebbs and flows. Yeah. Like there's, there's valleys in between those, but it's not kind of like a soothing valley. It just kind of is a, a natural occurrence of the day. And when Daniel and, and Tish or Fani are talking, or during the sequence with the, the two families arguing, like there's a, such a perfect beat to it. Yeah. Such a perfect sound. And I, and but tone I, you know what? But I just, just, but I disagree with you. I actually think the Daniel scene doesn't have perfect beats. They're working off each other perfectly. But that is a conversation that just kind of rolls along, and like as they're smoking and drinking beer, but it rolls so realistically. But that's oh, I mean, love why, that scene. but that's like, is this movie's not about naturalism? Like this is not like a neo-realist film. Like it's a piece of it's a piece of impressionist art. No, it is. That, I like, agree. But the... you know, is is staged as such. It's staged as but what, at stage as a memory. What is the purpose then, and what is the intention with Jenkins to to frame those scenes like those scenes kind of of no consequence with this kind of like weird narrative flow? But that's of so happiness the, with these so scenes. I think that like that's punch. I think that's what you're. I think that's the difference between. Uh, if there's a difference in uh, um, our perceptions of the thesis, but there's also a difference in our perceptions of these scenes. I don't think this scene, this movie, has any wasted scenes. There's no scene that's like lesser than like another scene. Every scene creates this I mean to me like beautiful portrait of these two people. Um which includes some terrible fucking shit, but is still like a uh, like a tr- a beautifully crafted like portrait of of uh, of two people trying to be in love when the world is essentially telling them, like you can't not be in love, you can't be anything. And I, I, I think that there's a drive and like in, in the tone at points to carry the audience to a certain feeling of emotion that's, you know, talking about the, those the date sequence. Um, you know, Stefan James is just naming off the list of things they could do. That feels like a real thing. Um, but then when it later goes into like her recollection, yes, it's to be saccharine of like, even when he was talking to Diego Luna's character, he's still holding my hand or like that hand grabbing sequence, a close sequence in the subway. Like those scenes to me just feel has, as though they're telling you how to feel. And I'm like, 
bugged by that. But, already, but uh, Barry Jenkins is such a like. But you such already a know how to director, feel. But because like you I, know, I don't though. Because like I, well, I how think would you I feel do. about that? Like, well, I'm not sure why they're holding hands. Well, I don't know well, about no, this hand-holding. No, exactly. Well, no, I know. Okay, that's fair. I, sorry, I would agree. I do agree that I know how I feel. So I know how I feel. Don't don't tell me how I need to feel. Don't have Tish go like, this is why I knew he cared about me. Like, seeing those small signs of him talking to Diego Luna with his back turned while still needing to reach out and grab her, that says a lot. You can just show that. You don't need to have this, like, floating narration. I think maybe the narration is my biggest problem with this film. Which is odd because we're going to talk about a movie that is ruined. Because I don't think it... No, okay. By the narration. But here's the difference. There is I don't... (laughs) I don't think there's an effective purpose to the storytelling for the narrative to exist in terms of the emotions that he's not already showing you on the the screen. But I, I... get past that and I think it works and I think it is works really well and I'm happy it's there because of how I perceive its intention. Well, I have, we, we talked about this before that I have huge pet peeves about a certain degree of fat to films and, and excess and I... Well, but I, to Barry... And, I mean, Barry Jenkins' really movies are going to be... in the gut. Right, but Barry like, Jenkins' movies things. are going to do that stuff. Like, well, he's think, always going to put the... He's always going to put the fat in there because he just likes to shoot shit well, beautifully. Let this be known. I'm not having this review... I, I hated this movie. I would never tell a person not to go see this movie. If a person came up to me and said that, I'm kind of interested in Beale Street. But did you hate it? I did did not enjoy my experience watching it from about two or ten minutes after the the family discussion. I I knew the tone it was going to kind of be and like the pace it was going to take. And I'm like, I don't want to sit through this. And, And... my my ultimate review would be: I do not like this movie. I never want to see it again. It's not for me. I, I think films tell. It, it's frustrating because it's so talentedly shot. I mean, I think the cinematography is a little flat. Kind of reminds me of something like Sunset Limited or like many of the adaptations of Failsafe, where it's you know shot like a basically a Ibstein play. Um, but in terms of the direction, like I think Barry Jenkins' direction in this is. Fan fucking tastic, and I have no problem with seeing him get nominated. I mean, he's but, not because everything no, sucks. Not, but. Yeah, the world's awful. He'll get he'll get a he'll get a screenplay nomination. He'll that's probably my problem. Win that one. Is um no, the fucking Star is Born probably will somehow. Is <sighs> is that he just adds stuff in because I don't think he trusts enough in himself yet, and that and when that happens, it just it just gets to me. Um, I love when we disagree on movies because I think and it's so civil well I think a lot of times we agree on movies and it looks bad like I think our general disinterest in Roma like was a bad was a bad look or for like us just because doing everyone, the favorite just well, now everyone loved Roma and we were just like meh Roma well, sucks or everyone. The Star is Born and not everybody well yeah uh, Richard, our, hero, our hero Richard Brody didn't <laughs> like it either um, alright we will be right back with our number 77 movies in uh, just a second Welcome back. Just now we talked about if Beale Street could talk and the, from my side, the importance of narration um, and about how two people can vehemently disagree on said narration. We have also discussed the fact that me and Tom have two years on our list that are going to frequently show up. Tom's movie is also from his most frequent year. It's actually not 2017. It's from 2016. What the... Everywhere I saw it said 2017. Ah. Okay. Well, it was basically 2017. And my film from 2006 is the written uh, with Todd Field and Tom Parada, uh, directed by Todd Field, Little Children. 
Like a grown man. Smiling politely to mask a familiar feeling of desperation, Sarah reminded herself to think like an anthropologist. She was a researcher studying the behavior of typical suburban women. They weren't organic? She was not a typical suburban woman herself. In Little Children, Sarah and Brad play bored pseudo-intellectuals living as stay-at-home parents, both with a severe degree of failure to launch. Sarah, a failed academic uh, who had not, who had pursued her PhD but only ended up with her master's. Brad, a lazy man-child with arrested development who has gone to law school and has failed the bar repeatedly. These two parents and their boredom, they're anew, find each other and start a uh, tryst against the background of what is basically New England, Connecticut-style, whatever suburbia it should be. I, I took I this very much Jersey. to be. I took this to be an East Coast Definitely an East suburbia. Coast, yeah. Um, it has, carries a lot of those values of a movie you also hate, uh, Revolutionary Road. In, mm. in its, in its also sense. has Kate Winslet in it. Mm, yeah. Uh, they smartly replaced Patrick Wilson with Leonardo DiCaprio. I do not like Patrick Wilson in this. He is fucking terrible. Oh, man, I used to love Patrick Wilson. Why? Because I was, like, 20. I was 20 and drinking gin. Oh, man, he stinks. And, like, I saw Hard Candy. I fucking loved Hard Candy. Uh Like, David Slade, the only reason I watched Bandersnatch last week, well, I like Black Mirror, but David Slade directed it. Uh Even though he directed, like, the worst episode of the last season of Black Mirror. Um... Like, Art Candy, Ellen Page is great in that. And then Patrick well, yeah, Wilson, yeah. like, plays off of that, like, somehow. What but then, I... like, he kept starring in other things. And eventually I'm like, oh, no, I'm he's not good. Because I, I, a lot of Jennifer Connelly's faces in this movie, I perceive to be just, like, her wondering what the, <laughs> what Patrick Wilson's doing with himself. And then Todd Fields just, like, left him in. She's like, that's actually really good. Her yeah, that, that confused be... kind of irritation is actually really same, appropriate. Same thing, <laughs> oddly enough, with Kate Winslet at times in this film. Mm. Um, but against the main backdrop of their um, affair, uh, some of the other townsfolks, Larry, played by Noah Emmerich, who's my favorite suburbia, angry old man-ish, um, and Jackie Earle Haley, playing Ronnie in a nominated role, um, have their own sort of gravity and, and volume to him. Um, and this is all told against the backdrop of Frontline's Will Lyman narrating the film. Mm-hmm. Why do I love this movie? I hate, hate narration with a passion. I, I think narration is oftentimes a lazy... I, I, I'm okay with narration when it sets the base um, of a story... Like, a lot of people have problems with, like, opening crawls or opening narration. I'm fine with that. Like, you know, Terminator does it really well. A lot of those movies do it exceptionally well to, like, get you to a point in the story you need to be. Mm-hmm. And that shit doesn't matter. But for the most part, I feel it's a crutch to tell emotion Did instead of showing Did you like it in Goodfellas? No. No, you didn't. I think, I, think it's, I think it's, once again, telling you. I, I think Ray Liotta's pretty decent, like, in the At one it. time in yeah, his yeah. fucking life. Which is why his second best performance is in as Tommy in GTA Vice City. <laughs> that's, that's true. That's, that's really a hot take. It's pretty good. At it. um, but I, this was the first movie that wasn't a comedy. I mean, it's comedic in its its way, but that adds to the drama and, and adds to the story narrate the narration for me. 
I was a big frontline kid growing up, so I like kind of see Will Lyman as a, a blanket at times. Like his <laughs> voice is, is a nice little comfortable blanket. <laughs> you should have it like on a you know MP3 player when you go to bed. Like go to sleep now. He'll, he'll be my he'll be my S ASMR. Yeah. <laughs> um, but I think that Todd Field and I really loved in the bedroom. We talked about this off air, where we both agree that kind of the turn in the bedroom hurts it a bit, but. Everything beforehand is so natural, yeah, yeah. At, and Todd Field, I think, is really good a lot of times at, at caring natural, um, and, and there's not a lot of fat to his two movies. Come on, Todd Well, Field. that's, we're going to... We're yeah. going to disagree on that. I agree. I know. Um, but the narration, to me, does such a great job in showing you how vapid and pointless this main story is uh-huh. against the backdrop of real shit happening. And one of the things I loved is... The fact that so many film critics, like James uh, Bernadelli, like just saw this mostly as a story about um, you know the vapidness of youth and like the fact that like even Kate Winslet and Patrick Wilson talked in interviews right after this film was made about how like oh this film ends with a spot where they can grow. They both have arrested development. They both have attachment issues. They both have you know this hatred for their children. Blah blah blah. Um, and like this moment, the movie ends with a, a sense of ability to grow and become something. Um, but I, the narration to me does such a fantastic job of underlying how little the story means. And the only story, the only direct character where you don't get that narration over, or at least to a significant amount, is the Ronnie character. Mm-hmm. You know, we're. Her, his grandmother, Larry's interactions with Ronnie, those are narrated. We get a sense of being told how to feel. Being told how to feel from this omniscient perspective. Mm-hmm. I mean, the narration is not done to... It's, it's told from a way of this world. These things that you might find important to yourself and you might like attach onto that, you're fucking stupid for that. Yeah. And it, it narrows the field of this one storyline of this man who's you know exposed himself to a child but is has a fucking compulsion and has a mental illness and, and is just reaching out for something. And it doesn't, I mean, it doesn't need to tell you, but it doesn't kind of lay over that. And it's just devastating because in the fact where all these characters have the potential for growth and where Will Lyman tells you there could be growth, it's, it's a sarcastic growth because it's all vapid and meaningless and nothing. Well, what's sarcastic? The voiceover? Because the voiceover is not really sarcastic. There, there's a tone, like no, the, the tone, the tone to the way he's presenting those characters beforehand. The fact that their their worries and their their proclivities to attaching onto their childhood, like skateboarding or football, um, or, or Kate Winslet's kind of you know thoughts on the other women around her and the uh-huh. other people around her, it, it does a, a point of telling like these two people are fucking idiots themselves. But it, it, it's so it's it's saying like whether or not they grow in the end doesn't matter because these people are fucking nothing people. Patrick, you know, Brad and Sarah are fucking nothing people. Larry, like to kind of tell you how to feel, I'm like, but he's still a, a nothing. He has, you know, maybe he saw his growth from that post traumatic stress, but he's still kind of a nothing person himself. They tell you like, oh, he has this triumph of maybe saving a life, but it's a nothing thing. It's it's this sad, empty, vapid Eastern East Coast suburban attitude of vapidness about oh well this was a learning experience and now i have room for growth and it's told against this backdrop of a man who's suffering who's you know used as 
an antagonist to their yeah. fucking nothing stories. But this man is so broken and so reaching out. It's a compulsion. It's not necessarily that he was. Well, I think that's told really to well. The frame with it with. Um, well, that Jane like Adams learned behavior thing. I think with all, with all like the his mother's like you know ch- like little kid. What are those Hummels? Yeah, those, the, the dolls know, like that the he destroys after stuff. She like dies. you know, she's in. She's constantly infantilizing him. He keeps calling her mommy. It's saying how he can't like do the dishes, and after she dies, he does the dishes like a grown man would right. be able to. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But it is a learned fetish, like. It shows any well, example with, not with a that finish, but I wonder. Not a learned I think finish, but a learned. the movie is trying to make the case. The, the movie, more so than the book, is trying to make the case that he may have been, he may have suffered something as a child, which led him to want to expose himself. Yeah, to and it's because it's not necessarily there, there's not an inherent evil. There's not this shallowness to it. There's a deep fucking problem there. You know, this he is a victim in itself, and it's presented that way in the fact that in the end, he's the only person that has no fucking. He's not going up. Everyone else has their self-narration, their self-perspective that they're going to go up, but they don't fucking matter because they're not doing anything. And the reason I love this movie is it fucking is such an indictment on just, like, these vapid nothingnesses surrounding people with, like, actual real problems and the fact that you can turn those actual real problems into... You can, you can shake your hand to it. You know, you can hold your hand to it. And this hold your hand off to it and say, I don't give a fuck. You know, this is... You know, 2006 during that kind of like that, that bubble right before that bubble kind of burst underneath, you know, George W. Where, where people just fucking cared about their own vapid fucking problems. And they didn't. There, there was no there was a vilifying of actual problems. And that happens today. You know, like there is is a vilifying of the poor, a vilifying of minorities. Uh, and, and this movie to me exemplifies in the way that like fucking white suburban dumbasses could possibly maybe interpret it in the fact that your problems and the narration does this so well and everything around its direction is so hollow, so meaningless. Your problems don't fucking matter and your mm-hmm. growth doesn't fucking matter. These people are fucking hurting in the middle. These, these nothing people that you vilify because there's nothing there, that's the actual fucking problem. Yeah. And that's why I love this movie. Um. Little Children, number 77. <laughs> we'll be right back with uh, Tom's number 77. We can do that if you want. It's, it's fine. No, um, I mean, I kind of, I don't disagree. I mean, I think this movie stinks. Um, but I don't disagree. And I didn't like it when it came out in 2006. And I didn't like it now. Um, even though I have kids now. Um, well, I guess I should care more about this stuff. But I don't. In the same way that, you know, you, you say that this stuff doesn't matter. Um, I always interpreted the narration to be vaguely anthropological. Like it's, you know, you get Kathy who's making um, her, you know, her documentaries about, I guess it's, it's supposed like to PBS be Iraq. Like PBS-styled Iraq war. I mean, it's, in the book, kind it's of World current War affairs. In the book, it's World War II, but I think this is, is more Iraq stuff. Um, I, I like aligned it to that. And, you know, that they have this kind of, it's almost like a case study in, like you said, like really empty, vapid people, um, and the narrator is kind of doing <clears throat> where the narrator in Vox Lux was interpretive. You know what I mean? This narrator is just literally telling you how these people are like feeling, almost in a very, in a very low key, matter of fact way like it's like it's like it's the truth and if it's the truth that makes it significant somehow you know what i mean so but that i think i mean maybe that's my that's what we disagree is the fact that like 
in a sense that I agree with you on that, that it is the truth, but I think it's trying to be told to an audience. It's, it's trying to speak in such a way that it didn't have faith in some of the people that'd be seeing it. Right. And, and I being think that's like, true. I, we have to tell you you're fucking stupid. Yeah. Um, and that's why I appreciate it. It's an indictment on kind of like the era. It's an indictment on what I think it's, it doesn't, it won't probably, I mean, it'll stand the test of time a year and a half ago before people started like going, well, we fucked up. No, they still um, don't care about anything with this. So I think your point though about the Jackie Earl Haley thing, because I think you're right. I don't think there is any narration about. From like telling you how to feel about him. Yeah, because it juxtaposes like the narration, you know, what I perceive to be the anthropological narration um, against um, the character's narration of his life. So the char- the other characters in the movie are telling us how that we should feel about this man. And then we see him and you're just like, well, he just kind of, his life just stinks. Yeah, and what's interesting too is, is the only person that's not really... I mean, he's really... terrible. I mean, he's... He did something terrible, and he's got a terrible, terrible disease, um, and he's got terrible. He needs compulsions. to be treated, though. He needs to be. I think so. I think this is one of the. This is another one of the failings, I think, in the adaptation between the book and the movie is that in the m- book he's an evil fuck, and he's not just. He's not. There's no sympath. There's no sympathy. Well, I think. Like, I think the book's. I think asshole. the book's fucking garbage. Yeah, he's. I an, hate. I hate this book. Um. I think both of Tom Perotti's books are bad. I He's got not, lots of books. Well, both of his major ones that got turned into films. Uh-huh. This is an election, I think. Well, I, I think elections. I think election the film and election the book suck. Yeah. And I think this film's great, and I think the book is awful. Mm-hmm. I, I just think this feels much more like Tom Fields. Like, mm, yeah, you can co-write it. This is me with a red pen. Well, what did you think of the end? What do you think of the end? Because the end of the book is really kind of laid back and like... Um, Why the fuck am I forgetting the very last scene right now? So in this, I just watched this again last night. When he cuts his when he cuts his penis Oh, is that the very is that the last? That's the very end of the movie. Yeah, that's the very last. I mean, it's not. It's it's part of like there's a montage of things. That are uh, I didn't know if that's the very final shot. Um, um, I, I mean, it's because it's it's the it is blunt again. Like this movie is very blunt. And what's interesting too is the fact that like it takes Larry a while to even notice it. Nobody really gives too much a shit. Even when Sarah's talking to him, she doesn't really care. It's kind of like an offhandedness, and before she goes back into her own bubble. Mm-hmm. Um, I think it, it's it's blunt in the fact that it is once again showing what you have to feel, and that's what I appreciate about this movie. Is I think it was just it is just a, such a nice relic of its time. And the reason, like, I loved it initially was like, like yeah, like it it captures like that anger you had at the time mm-hmm. um, that is now <laughs> kind of works to be a pivotal film in a sense of for a while there you forgot about it. Between like 2008 and 2014 ish. No, 2012. Sorry. We got to go back to the supermajority. And then, <laughs> um, and then you're like, oh, right. It's still like a plot. And like, it's so like, it, this movie pops back in my head every so often. I'm like, oh, fucking white people. We were dumb for a little bit. And then we we're dumb again. And we're still dumb. Yeah. Um, I like movies that tell me I'm dumb. Yeah, um, I actually didn't think you were going to go there with it. Like that it's, you know, that the indictment Ooh. realm. We, <laughs> we did talk earlier about how uh, if one of us is dead, we're going to have somebody else interpret what you thought the thought was. What did you think I was going to... Um, did you create counterpoints to, to what you thought was going to be my points? No, 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 no. Um, because we don't re- ever talk about it ahead of time. So, like, I don't ever know what you're going to think. So I would have no way to... We say our general impressions, would, but... Right, but I would have no way to create a counterpoint against any of your points. Well, um, I mean, my, I, I think it's just, 
Um, I think it was doing a lot of the stuff that a lot of the movies tried to do back then. Like so, like when when um, uh, when Brad is thinking of Jennifer Connelly, like in that one part, and like you know, the narration's talking about like her perfect legs and she has this and blah 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 blah, and it's just the the white screen. You see close ups of her stuff. There's just like all these film gimmicks that people really liked in like the mid two thousands. You know yeah. what I mean? Like when they were trying to create a kind of off-the-cuff experimental tone without being you mean, you vaguely mean those, experimental. You mean Adam McKay? Adam McKay style, style filmmaking? Don't even... Did you? Are you going to see it? I'm, I'm going to have to. You should see it. And we'll do a special episode just ripping it. To, uh, we're going to do a special episode of oh. me stabbing myself in the hand. It is just the worst. <laughs> if you haven't listened to my instant review of Vice, do, I we could, hate it. We could always do another special episode on Green Book. Although you liked the performances in it, I thought... They were fine. Well, I mean, that movie we can, was fucking well, I think we'll talk a little bit about that next week, about like some of this Globe stuff. I actually think Green Book is an okay movie. I guess so, yeah, it was okay. It's, oh, it's literally, it's, it's okay. So long. It's long. But it's like the definition of okay. You know what I mean? It doesn't do anything I great. think I'm frustrated about that movie. It doesn't do anything the, terrible. I'm frustrated that the movie is okay because it's like carried by really exceptional performances. And you're like, ah, oh, fucking, who let Peter Farley direct this? But that's the thing. I don't think it's... Um, you know, it's being criticized for its racism. I don't think it's necessarily racist. I think it's just a little tone deaf. You yeah. know what I mean? And, well, it's, and it wants to do, it wants to be something really important. Are you, are you saying the maker of the 2010s Three Stooges film doesn't know how to capture tone? A little tone, little tone deaf. A little tone deaf sometimes. Um, have you seen Me, Myself, and Irene? I have. I really liked Me, Myself, and Irene. That's tone deaf. But that's, it's, tone deaf yeah. Um, in the same way that, it, you know, the creator of Step Brothers got won an Oscar. But wait, maybe you... we'll hear one day that the <laughs> creator of you know there's he's something about Mary. He's going to get nominated. Oscar. But you're you're avoiding the point. What did you think I was going to like about this? I'm just curious. Oh well, it's the thing. So I didn't really when I was watching it, I was like, I was wondering where, I was wondering where you were going to go because there's a weird, it has a weird look. It has an almost fabricated look about it. You know what I mean? Like, everyone's skin is too perfect. Um, it's very Sam Mendes. Like, I, that. like um, Patrick Wilson sucks so hard that I almost wondered if it was on purpose, if he was supposed to be a fucking goofball everyone's, idiot. Everyone's really good around him, though. They're they're pretty good. You know what well, I mean? Jackie Early Haley's in Jackie Early Haley's really good. When they finally give him something to do, he's really good. I think, I think he's Jane, my I think Jane second, Adams is really good in this. He's my second favorite supporting performance from that year behind uh, Sergi Lopez. Mm-hmm. Well, yeah. We don't, we need to, I feel like we, like every four episodes, we bring up <laughs> back to Sergio Lopez somehow. Um, yeah, I th- and I, I wasn't sure. I wasn't sure if we were going to do. Um, if it was going to be technical stuff, it was going to be narrative stuff. If it was going to be kind of like directorial stuff, because it's like that 2006 bubble. Like I wasn't sure what about it would have kind of well, like creeped up and like bit you on the ass or something. Yeah, I think I think there's there's some truth to that, and the fact that it was nice in 2006. The, the you know that like I said, I became a big movie heavy movie watcher, needing to see all the movies before the Oscars were announced around 2004. Yep. Like this is the first movie that I felt wasn't like that. Its pretension was in the fact of being like we're fucking pretentious assholes. See now, did you like? Did you see American Beauty when it came out? Well, I saw American not ninety nine, but I saw American Beauty like two thousand one, two thousand two. Okay, so now did you? Because I feel like there might be a similar conversation to be had about something like American Beauty, where what? Yeah. Okay. Um, I just I'm talking in terms of um the confrontation with. 
like suburban moors. You know what I mean? Like how we, we how we all perceive the suburban life and what's really like going on under the surface of the suburban life. Well, I think I think my one issue with with American Beauty is there's a bit of floatiness to it. That's um, like a good float, which you we know works, which works here, really Mark. well for that film. That, hey, eight more months for that one. Um, and, and this kind of cuts that out by going like, "We're fucking douches." Mm. I mean, I don't like it anymore, but I think you are. Um, I've justified its position on my list. No, I don't care what your position is. It's your list. But I'm saying I, I think I, it's. <laughs> I, I think your take is more made more interesting. Um, in that sense. And then it cuts the kind of artfulness out of it and just presents a bunch of dumbasses, like, trying to justify their dumbassness, you know, for their own end, for no other reason other than they're sad. Yeah. I just don't like how my life turned out. Even though everything's pretty good. Fucking millennials, huh? Oh, wait, these weren't millennials. No. But it's... I guess they're Gen Xers. Read shit on the Gen Xers too much. Should have been about the baby. Well, the baby boomers are kind of shitheads in this too. So, well, actually, all the baby boomers are presented kind of decently, except for he's no Emmerich. Or, no, he's probably a baby boomer too, or he's probably a Gen Xer too. He'd be a Gen. I guess all the baby boomers are kind well, of. Well, the baby boomers would be Gene and the late old oh, ladies at the book club. Rebecca Shul. Yep. The lovely Rebecca Shul. There you go. Wings. Did you watch that show? Fuck. Yes. I think we've talked about Wings before. We do. I've talked too. about Wings. That's a good show. Man, I love that show. We'll have to do a special Wings. No, I think we should reach. When the podcast uh, hits episode point. one, we'll turn it into a wings re. Like, <laughs> we'll rewatch every episode of Wings and I, talk about I still, it. I still keep standing by my top ten TVs, but I don't think you're going to do that. Uh, not TV shows, TVs, brands of brands of TV, <laughs> brands of television. Um, but no, like there's there is just a reduction, um, and that's that's what to, for me. Mm-hmm. Like it's it's one of those movies. It's one of the few movies during that time, at a time where movies were such a fucking hollow point until 2006. There was. Movies I really loved in 2004, some in 2005. There's but there was like, also a fucking Million Dollar Baby. But like there was, and Finding Neverland. There was, there was a well, huge. Finding Neverland is just terrible. There's a huge gap in, in the number of films. Mm-hmm. And 2006, I think it was, and Little Children is actually the first movie of that circuit I haven't really watched where it was just, it set off a yeah. fucking chain reaction. Because 2006 and 2007 are, you know, two of, for me, two of the best years. It's a back to back. Period. Yeah. There's a lot of, a lot of movies on our list from both of those years. Yes. Not so much 2008. Fuck all movies from 2008. We'll be right back with Tom's. Well, I have a couple movies from 2008. <laughs> we'll be right back with Tom's number 77. That's the beard. It's a beard rub. Uh, my number 77 is the 2016 film uh, One More Time with Feeling. Most of us don't want to change. Really. I mean, why should we? What we do want is sort of modifications on the original model. We keep on being ourselves but just hopefully better versions of ourselves. But what happens when an event occurs that is so catastrophic that you just change? Um, directed by Andrew Dominic, uh, who did the assassination of Jesse James and um, Killing Him Softly. 
Um, it is a documentary about huh, uh, Nick Cave, the singer-songwriter Nick Cave, and um, made one of my favorite songs of all time. Right, right hand. Yeah, there you go. It's a good one. Um, and his trying to finish a record um, under the weight of his son's death um you know six eight months um prior um his son arthur died um september September, oh july 2015 um he was 15 years old he fell off a cliff um a lot of musicians children young children die by falling do they Oh no! Just him, just yeah. that, and Eric Clapton. And um, well, that's true. That's a different thing, though. I almost made a joke. I'm not gonna make a joke about yeah, that. Me... <laughs> it's gonna go an Antichrist joke, and I was like, "Oh, jeez." Oh man, yeah. Let's not get started on the Antichrist. Um, they found out later that he was uh, may have been on LSD. Um, I don't think that matters. I think the media really liked talking about that, um, but it doesn't make any difference. He's a fucking kid. Yeah. Um, they were vilifying the uh, vilifying the victims. Oh. Yeah, that's what the media is really good at vilifying victims of things. Um, the Nick Cave and his band, the Bad Seeds, um, were I guess like five songs through this record the when it happened. Skeleton Tree, Skeleton Tree. Um, but knowing, I think that people were going to conflate for good reason. Uh, which we'll talk about later, the creation of this record with his son's death, um, he kind of put them together and made this film. Um, this film was was released at on September 5th at the Venice Film Festival 2016, and on September 8th at select theaters for one for one night only. It was supposed to be a one night only thing. It was supposed to stand as. Um, Nick Cave's official statement regarding the death of his son and regarding this record there at the time there was no he had no concrete plans to tour this record he didn't want to talk about this record Um, any conversation that anyone wanted to have about this record with him it was essentially just referring you to the movie Um, I listened to a great um, interview on NPR with Andrew Dominic who said you know, who made constant reference to the idea that, like, if you if you didn't see it, you missed it. Um, it subsequently got released again for a night in December, I believe, and then on DVD several months later. Um, the outpouring for this movie, um, people wanting to see this movie was so great that they just, they kind of, you know, they put it out there for more. Nick um, Cave financed this movie himself. Um, he commissioned this movie. He no one asked him to do it. He asked um, Andrew Dominic to make it. Um, it was shot uh, over the course of like ten days in the studio when they were doing overdubs and kind of finishing finishing some stuff. Um, it was shot in. Uh, it's a black and white movie. It was shot in two D and three D. So the screening I saw it at on September eighth at the Jacob Burns Film Center um, was in three D, so you had to wear these really heavy three D glasses. It was in a it was packed it was, the screening was packed. Um, you know, it was a just a whole bunch of people um, who like Nick Cave 
that I think felt something for Nick Cave more than just like, oh, this is a singer that I like, um, who wanted to, it almost felt like you were going to support Nick Cave, like through his tough time. Um, and Andrew Dominic said the same thing. He's like, well, you know, I forget who did the interview on NPR. I think it was the All Songs Considered guy, but I forget his fucking name. Um, was like, oh, it seems like there's a, uh, there's, you know, a lack of context for a lot of this stuff. And he's like, well, we just made it for fans. We didn't make it for everyone to see it. We just made it for pe- people who would normally go out and, and oh, Bob, Bob Boylan? Bob Boylan, I think, is his name. The guy in NPR. Um, Bob Boylan and Robin Hilton. Yeah, I think it was just a Bob. I think just Bob Boylan was doing the interview. Um, so like I said, I saw it on... Uh, when I heard about Arthur's death originally, I was very sad for Nick. Nick Cave is kind of one of my musical... I don't want to say musical. Like one of my artistic... I don't want to say idols. I don't want to say heroes. Um, but someone I look up to from an artistic perspective. Um, so much so that there's another Nick Cave documentary on my on my list. And, you know... People are doing the bingo Next right year, now. yeah, yeah. Um, Next year, that far ahead, huh? Yeah, yeah, it's a, it's a, it's in, it's up there. Um, so it's not just his music, although I love his music. Um, he's one of those guys that you know. The, the second the album comes out, I used to drive. I used to wait in for the Best Buy to open. You know, what I mean, to go get the new Nick Cave record whenever it was. Now it's just online. So the day after I went to see this movie, my copy of Skeleton Tree. Um, came in the mail um so i was all skeleton treed out for a very long time i mean the 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 album and the movie had such an impact on me i wrote a poem about it um that won an award um and i really didn't finish seeing this movie until the way i think of it until i saw nick at the um king's theater in brooklyn on may 27th um, on his, like... 2018 or... 2017. Um, when he brought the Bad Seeds over and played this whole record and a bunch of, like, Bad Seeds classics and stuff. Um, and the show was so... It's one of, I think one of my top shows um, I've ever seen was so profound because the audience was... I mean, we live in Connecticut, um, which I think is probably the worst state for concert audiences. Um, Nebraska? We, we want, no, I think Nebraska is probably great because they probably don't get everything. We want everything, uh, but okay. once it's here, we don't fucking give a shit. Like when you know I mean? 6,000 people want to go see Muse. Although we'll probably disagree on that. At Mohegan Sun? Yeah. Well, that's the thing. So did they stay in their seats and watch Muse at Mohegan Sun, or did they filter in and out to gamble? Oh, no. They, I don't know. I was, I was up in the rafters. See, because I've seen a bunch of Mohegan Sun shows, too. And like, I think the problem at Mohegan Sun is that there's a casino there. So people are just like, oh, this song's boring. I'm going to go play some slots for a second. Oh, okay, I'm going to go back in now. Oh, I'm going to go back out. Um, so there's always like a line of people coming in and out. Um, but this audience was giving it to Nick Cave. So much so, Mario, that he, after this tour, after he finished touring for this, he felt so like empowered and held up by the audience. He went on a, a tour of like speaking engagements where the whole thing was just people asking him questions. Like, he just sat and people asked him questions and he answered them for however long it lasted for. And he's, even after that, has started this new, um, 
I don't even know what, what you call it. I guess it's it's a website, but it's a new like communication website where it's called the Red Hand Files, where people just send him questions and he just picks them and answers them in like these really long essays sometimes or these really snarky answers sometimes. Like he is feeding off of his audience, which wants to, which after this event that happened to him just wanted to fucking hold him up. It's just a strong catharsis. Basically. Right. And I was one of those, and I was one of those people. Um, I just wanted to, to pick him up forever. Um, so this, I mean, that's, this is a, this is one of those kind of pivotal films. This is a pivotal, you know, it's just a part of my life. One of the heart now. ones. Yeah. Um, well, we're definitely in, we're in the heart zone now. It's funny though, because you was you were just like oh I don't really like music, you know rock ducks, um, and, well, and, and like to to point that out I think this is still masterfully done in the sense sure, of sure, sure. I don't care too much about Nick Cave as an artist overall I like his music but mm-hmm. I don't have any emotional attachments to any musician I'm not a music guy mm-hmm. I think we talked about this before I'm one of those I'm one of the few the only person I've ever met who every time I hear a song all I can do is tie it to a movie scene <laughs> and a music to me only stands has a way to how does it work for a movie. Mm-hmm. And so, like, Nick Cave's good for that. Well, that's the thing. But so, I don't have an emotional connection to it. Yeah. But, like, you know, Dominic is such a good director, and, you know, Nick Cave's such a good storyteller. Like, even in the most simple of questions, like, there's a, a long kind of meandering with it. Um, mm-hmm. But the meandering that makes it very human, it makes it very personal. Like, there's points where I kind of, like, like, rolled my eyes about his, like, prothosatizing... Proselytizing. Proselytizing. Um, about, especially about his music. Um, when he's talking about more about the personal things in his life, like his wife and, and mm. love and whatnot and women in general, like that, or like his, his weirdness with like things being moved around the house, um, like that gets you next to the guy. So you do care about it. Like, yeah, yeah, and yeah. like it makes you care more about the music because it has like those long sequences of being kind of like a concert documentary. Um, but you do have a couple like music documentaries on here, so I just wonder what the point is of the emotional attachment is the music documentary has a film and not has its attachment to the artist. Right. So I don't so my whole thing about these documentaries, because I don't like concert films. I have a concert film on here, um, but it's kind of a different thing. But I tradition I, like, I love one concert film. Right. I, I love one concert film. I generally find concert films just impossibly boring. Even for bands I love. It's Limp Biscuit, by the way. It's I a just, Limp Biscuit okay. concert video. From from the the uh, it's from like the rearranged tour Chocolate Starfish and Hot Dog Flavored Water. <laughs> yeah. Tour. Yeah. Um I find concert like so for you know, I'm I'm a big Pearl Jam fan. I'm a big Black Crows fan. I'm a big um Crowded house fan. I am a huge fucking Nick Cave fan. I don't want to watch a Nick Cave concert film. I don't want to watch it. I would just. I've seen Nick Cave four times. I'll just go to his show. I got no use for sitting around in my TV and just kind of casually watching a concert. That's got no value. It depends me. on. It depends on the maker, the filmmaker. Like for mine, it stopped making sense, and that's you know, sure, I just yeah, like yeah. how Demi frames that really mm-hmm. well. So. It's, a, a nice perspective you wouldn't get in a concert sort of thing. I guess that's true, yeah. Uh, and that's But that's something different. That was set up specifically to be a concert yeah. movie. Um, that's the same thing with the movie that's on my that's on my list. It's designed specifically to be a concert movie. Um, I think Rock Docs, though, if they're done, if they're done well, are 
not just about when they're done badly they're just about like this is a guy who did this thing i mean people are talking a lot about now about this like four hour peter bogdanovich directed tom petty documentary Oof. that's just everything oh it's incredible no it's just it's just boring tom petty tom petty wrote a bunch of really awesome rock and roll songs but and he cut a woman into cake and he, <laughs> and like he he did some hard living but if you don't give a shit about hard living like rock star hard living then I got no use for most yeah, I think, rock documentaries. I think the only rock documentary like in my past that ever really like got I attached myself to is Devil Daniel Johnston. Well that's but that's the thing. That's not about like and that's that's I think that's a perfect example that's just like this movie. Yeah, I would, so I would it's agree. It's not about it's not about rock and roll. It's not it's no. about how life exp- how creativity both adds to and detracts and um, obscures like real life because he and he tell or or even like the art because he does tell you like you know you do get a sense of of the reasons he's creating the music outside it's not a you know not so much about what's happening with the connection to the sun right and so but it is about kind of like the artifice of, of the real life they have or, or the, the 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 fish lens they kind of get in life mm-hmm. and I think these two those two films um, you know. Miss one and, and Devil Dan Johnston kind of do that well in the sense of, of presenting both of those sides. There's no like facade to it, and I think a lot of rock documentaries have this lattice against it, this this the weird sort of painted well, veil. Right, and there's a kind of I mean, one of the things I like about this is that there's not a lot of um, because of that, it's not one of those like hero worship movies. Like it's just Nick Cave talking about you know how he's approaching this record. He's a dude. He's just like presented as and a he's dude. A, and he's a and he's a sad fucking dude and he understands, but he's also really smart. So he understands that it's impossible to put out a record where the first line is like you fell from the sky, you know, whatever. When his son 8 months earlier literally fell from the like or a year earlier like fell from the fucking sky and died. You know what I mean? He understands that, like, and his he talks about that. His his wife, um, Susie Bick, has this um really strong mystical sense, and she actually finds you know some of his songwriting to be very prophetic, um, and you know has a big problem with the idea that like sometimes things in his songs just kind of seem to happen. Um, he kind of tosses that off, but he also can't fully toss it off because he's confronting that idea in this in this movie. And I think that's one of the things I really love about this movie is that it's really, it's, it's kind of about confrontation. I mean, he makes that, um, that elastic metaphor at the end where he's, you know, he he talks and he's talking earlier in the thing about like how time is elastic and he criticizes himself. He's like, I was just rambling about time being elastic, but he's like, I think that's what, but I think that's what it is in the sense that like you have this trauma and like you can go on with your life for as you know, as long as the elastic will go for, but eventually, like it brings you right back to the like something will bring you right back to the trauma. Like you can't yeah. fully, you can't fully get away from it. And I think that's one of the really brave things about this movie is that he's he's tying this record and the death of his son together, even though he doesn't he doesn't want them to be. But he also understands that they're. Inex- they're inextricable whether he wants them to be or not because they were working on it when he died and they were working on it after he died and it has all these you know it's you know a new direction for the band and they're kind of confronting some different emotions and they're doing things a little differently and, and part of that 
little differences is that he, you know, used to work really hard on his lyrics, but he kind of realized with the death of his son and with going back and doing these records that he kind of just had to let those things go. Like those things, not that they don't matter as much, but they matter in a, they matter in a different way. You know what I mean? They, they, it changed his, it changed his perspective on what he does and not that there's no value in it. Cause I think that's one of the things that, um, a movie like this could do or like a, maybe a narrative was like, well, I really, I've learned that life is really valuable and this stuff doesn't matter. But he like understands that they, it, it, even though he kind of says like in, very poetically in some of those poems that he wrote, which he recorded all the voiceovers he recorded on his iPhone and Andrew Dominic added them in like, you know, to the thing. So, um, it's a very like an organic feel to like the creation of the, of this movie. Um, but he understands that it does matter. Like it's, it's, it matters to him just like Susie's work as a designer matters to her. And she just kind of poured herself into designing after her son died. And Nick was like, I couldn't like, I wanted to go back to work, but I couldn't because my head was just full of these thoughts and there was no room in there for like any other, any other thoughts. Um, and they're just, so now they're just like tied to each other. And that's the thing. I mean, and those are the kind of rock documentaries that I, I like. And there's, like I said, there's another Nick Cave one. There's a couple of other ones um, on my list. And they don't confront the idea of someone's fame. They confront the idea of someone's, not just creative process, but how this work is linked to their their personhood. Like how this, this band or these songs or whatever um, has changed who they are as as a human and how uh, being a human has changed who they are as an artist. Um, and I think that you can see that I think in some of like the other, I mean, I have a lot of movies about being creative like on this or writing or playing music. And I think it's all the same. I think it's weird. You have Ruby sparks 15. Times <laughs> on the I am. Um, I think they're all on there for the same reason. It's people confronting their humanity through their art. Um, that's what my number. I mean, that's what my number one is about. Um, someone trying to make art until he finds his humanity, and I think that's where this. I think this movie is fascinating because it's kind of the opposite. He is trying to find his art again through like this very this very human thing that he's going through, like this you know most traumatic of traumas and the music and the music the art in itself doesn't matter to the extent of his personhood which i like it's it's not like it's a great triumph if he can get the art out it's like it's a great triumph if he can move on as mm-hmm. a person and i appreciate that but i do think a lot of i just think so many people attach themselves to so many music documentaries now are the, well they're just the so, there's they're so just many so, music documentaries now they're just so rigidly based around the music like people love amy and amy was just so oh utterly attached to the fame or some kind of some kind of no some kind of monsters the metallica one the um mm-hmm. the lady gaga one like monster or whatever oh yeah what's that it's yeah. called monster um no it's her, five foot fame monster five foot two well fame monster her song fame is monster's her, a record uh yeah she, but she does have that one uh, five but, uh, by two or whatever all just yeah, so yeah. wallowing in in the aspect of the fame um well, yeah, they're just—they're all about like, oh, being famous is really hard. Yeah, and, and like, this is what I'm actually like, like when I'm not being this person. It's like, well, that's why is that interesting? Creative media that does that much better, you know. Mm-hmm. Let, let let a storyteller do that. Your real life experiences with it don't 
feel as authentic because mm-hmm. they're told through that lens. And, and these ones feel authentic because, like, these are people that are beaten down. And so, like, there is not going to be – there isn't a sense that there's going to be such a need to show things. Well, I just uh, think he doesn't have that to – That aren't true. Like, so he's getting driven around the whole time. You know what I mean? He's staying in this hotel. You know, he's making this documentary about himself. He's Nick fucking Cave. He's obviously got a beautiful, like, house, and he lives, on you know, on, in Brighton in England. So white. Such a yeah, white house. Um, but he's not, like, apologizing for his – fame ever which i think a lot of these movies try to either justify or apologize for it he's just like well i'm just this is just me i'm not like people like my music i'm not significant in that way he's just i'm just myself um it's like there's much bigger fucking issues one of the one of the ways and you know i'll be interested to hear your comments on this um that this movie gets its fucking work done is because the cinematography is so kind of fantastic i mean yeah. it was be- like, it was beautiful in 3d i think it works really well in 2d um it still has that dimension to it right it doesn't like artificially add into 3d like the, like i said the, i think this movie pinpoints down to authenticity and that's what dominic is known for authenticity right. like he presents a three hour long jesse james movie that should be boring and makes it more iconic than some of the other westerns that came out of its time well he even says he's like oh the th-, they're like why did you do it in 3d he's like well just added people always just want 3d to like jump out at you he's like but it just added a lot of depth to like what we were doing like so the room seemed bigger and like everyone seemed closer to you and like you got to see these people and you it know you, metaphorically in three dimensions it's instead a of just the two better aspect of making an observer in the life you yeah. know it puts you there it, but i mean so they have it gives you a physicality the two cinematographers benoit debbie and alwyn kukler um have like so Benoit Debbie worked well, with Gaspar No. And then Ratcatcher was... And then Alwyn Cougar did Morven Collar and Ratcatcher. So, yeah. like, they have... He's got... It's not just your stereotypical. Yeah. I love it because it's not... I'm okay loving it because it's... And putting it on this list because it's not, like, a rock doc stereotype. Like, there's film... The idea is not to just make it's another really, rock doc. It's not really it's a, a rock doc. It's like, a it's, essay. It's a, it's like it's an a, essay. It's like a filmic essay with musical interludes in between. It's more like a, a, a public, a personal interest sort of film. It's, it's more than a rock doc. I mean, there's concert footage in that. Of course, not concert footage, but the, the, you know, the concert video aspects mm-hmm. of it. But it's still, that part's just kind of connects acts, or not acts necessarily, that connects narratives to like the real meat of the film. The meat of the film is just about him as a person, not, mm-hmm. and his interaction with the art. Like, my interpretation of that, his interaction with the art. Like, it's not... It isn't really. I wouldn't even classify this so much as a, a rock doc. No, 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 no. But it's. I mean, the easy, like you know, um, the the quick little Google re- research like results rock page. Doc. Rockumentary. Oh yeah, rockumentary. Um, but yeah, I mean, it's. I. I and there's no denying its place as a pivotal film when you can. No, name no, off no. your places and your positions. Yeah, you it's it solid. In. It's um. Yeah, I don't know. I mean, I I mean, I do know. I'm not sure why I just said I don't know. I love it. And it makes me sad. I'm still sad. Like I'm still sad for him, but I'm also like really happy for him. Um, and I think some of the toughest scenes in this movie are just like him, like talking about his kid, and he's just like trying to hold it together. And I think one of the great things about it is that like there's these jump cuts where like he's talking and then he's like it's a cut and he's talking again, and you know that he said to stop because he, you know, had to break down for a second they just didn't leave it in yeah um and it just makes it it just makes it all that more human 
Um, so that's it. Uh, one more time with feeling. Go check it out. That's on Amazon Prime. Little Children is on some platforms. Well, they're, they're, it costs on Amazon Prime. No, but it's on. You can watch it for free on um, one of the subscriptions. One of the, or on Vudu, I think it's got uh, ads, but you can watch it for free if you want. Oh, Vudu is not a subscription thing. No, so it's just a regular app. So you oh. can pay for stuff there, uh, but they also have free with ad stuff. I did not, did not know. We're that. doing an ad for Vudu right now. Um, so we're going to take a couple weeks off after this episode, not from doing episodes, but just from our list. Next. So we got, you got one episode of the list. And then we're going to go yeah, back. We're going to go back. Are we going to drink? Are we going to do the, uh, the, the mads yeah. with those episodes? Yeah, yeah, because yeah, they'll be real episodes. Yeah. Um, but we're going to do next week, we're going to put out our um, best of the year list um, the weekend before the Oscar nominations come out. And then the week after that, we're going to do like a catch-up episode where we just talk about all the stuff that we, you know, and, s- that got released in 2018 that we didn't really get a chance to talk and, about. And all. our reactions and, and comments on the state of the award season. I think we have some some opinions. But we both, I think we both uh, tend to hold the Oscars in, in maybe too high esteem. Yeah. But we also are willing to acknowledge that the, the Oscars Globes. Are, have terrible faults and have made terrible decisions. Um, and we're holding off on that until we see what happens. Yeah, yeah. Maybe, but we're we gonna, can, maybe we can be surprised. We yeah, won't be. But we'll do our best we'll do our best ofs next week. Um, if you wanna tell us what we should see if we ha- if we haven't talked about it or you think we might have missed it, mm-hmm. you can tweet us at uh, twitter.com slash film pivotal. Mm-hmm. You can also Oh yeah, we're not gonna yeah, do we're that. Not, yeah. I was like um, I was like we're not gonna talk about that. You thing. can go to pivotalfilm.com and see a list of all the movies on our pivotal film list or the list of the beers we drank or links um, as to where to subscribe to us. You can see the knot that I gave Tom's head when he said he didn't like little children. You can see my busted <laughs> lip from the Beale Street conversation. Um, you can send us emails about whatever. Um, and maybe we'll answer you like Nick Cave does um, at pivotalfilmpodcast at gmail.com. Um, we get one question, which is like, we refuse to answer. Nah, if, no, the question is, did you see Zama? And I'm going to say, no, I can't. I can't do it. What's Zama? I haven't heard of Zama. It's, a, it's a, one of the movies that's not up for foreign film, but that everyone says is really, really good. It's on mm-hmm. Amazon Prime. And I, I've tried to watch it like four times, and I just can't do it. I just can't do it. I don't even, I, I guess it's well made. I just can't do it. It's just, it's just not working. Okay. Um, But until then, um, see a different movie, drink a beer, and we'll talk to you next week. Bye.